Genesis 38. And uh, we're going to talk tonight on the subject matter, sex scandals. Sex scandals is tonight's topic. And we're going to count off in groups and number, and I'm going to have each group present their uh, numbered list of practical applications for tonight. <laughs> Can we do that? I'm joking, of course. Genesis chapter 38. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Er. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kazib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This pre prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son, Shelah, is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Herah, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah, to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So she stopped and so he stopped rather and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. 
But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you're carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hirah, the Adulamite, to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hirah couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to Enaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hirah returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said... She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife uh, grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah. You probably never heard a sermon on Genesis 38, right? And if we weren't going through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, you probably wouldn't hear one tonight. You know, it's said that roughly seven-eighths of an iceberg lies below the surface of the water. What you see of the iceberg is a very small portion. Now, of course, that's an inexact science because each iceberg is different. But the principle remains the same. Far more of it is out of sight. Well, folks, that's a good analogy to Genesis 38. On the surface, you read this chapter and you have to wonder what in the world is going on here. But below the surface, there's a lot happening in this chapter. A lot more than you may realize that we're going to cover tonight. What we're going to see tonight is the recurring theme in the Bible that God's purposes march forward regardless 
of human sin. And even in spite of human sin. In fact, God even uses human sin for His divine purposes while God is never the author of human sin. James says in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so he uses human sin for his purposes without being the author of that human sin. Now if you're taking notes tonight, first thing I want you to write down is marriage violation. Marriage violation that we're going to talk about from verses 1 to 10. We're going to see marriage violation first of all by Judah and then secondly by Onan. Now as the chapter opens we see the actions of Judah. Judah is the fourth born son to Jacob. But because of the sins of his three older brothers, Judah is now the son who occupies the place of the birthright. You remember what Simeon and Levi did? What did they do? They murdered the men of Shechem. And then Reuben was the oldest. What did Reuben do? He slept with his father's concubine. And so that is now going to put Judah in the catbird seat as far as getting the birthright and the inheritance from his father. But I want you to notice what he does. In clear violation of what has been the practice of the patriarchs before him, he marries a Canaanite woman. Now, I want you to think back with me for a moment what Abraham told his servant in Genesis 24. In fact, you may want to turn back to Genesis 24 and look at verse 3 with me. Genesis 24, verse 3, Abraham said, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women, Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. And then turn with me over to Genesis 28, because I want you to see what Isaac told Jacob there. Chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him, and said, You must not marry any of these Canaanite women. And so the clear practice of the patriarchs had been what? Not to marry Canaanite women. And yet here is Judah doing what? Marrying a Canaanite woman. Now what was so sad about this was what the Canaanites believed. They were pagan idolaters. Folks, it's not that God forbids interracial marriages. It's not that he forbids marriages to people of a different country. That's not the issue at all. What God forbids is for his children to marry people outside of their faith. That's still a principle today in marriage, isn't it? 
Because you come down to the New Testament, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, what did he say? Believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, while that certainly applies to marriage, I think you could even broaden it out to say business partners. And again, it has nothing to do with prejudices of any kind. It's that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that unbelievers tend to impact us sooner than we impact them. That's one of the reasons also why the Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in, in church membership and attendance like is the habit of some. Because we've lived out in the world for a week and so we need that weekly encouragement from fellow believers. We need the prayers of one another. We need the encouragement of one another. Somebody who separates themselves away from active church attendance is going to do what? They're going to cool off in their own faith. But anyway, here, here Judah goes. He marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. And the marriage is fruitful. It produces three sons. Now, we're not told exactly what Ur's son was only that he was a wicked man so much so that God took his life now that harkens back to two previous occurrences we've already seen in the book of Genesis the first of those would be in Genesis chapter 6 where God saw the wickedness of mankind how everything they did was wicked, even their thoughts and the intentions of their heart was wicked. And so what did God say that he was going to do? He was going to destroy the human race. And that's what he did, with the exception of Noah and Noah's family. And then you come down to Genesis 18, and God sees the, the sin of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness. And God again says he will destroy the wickedness of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, which he does. Well, that's what he does with Ur here. Ur is a wicked man. Without defining what the wickedness was, God takes his life. Now, upon the death of Ur, Judah tells Onan to go and marry Ur's widow. Now, this later became law in Israel. It was referred to as what? Does anybody know? The Leveret marriage. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leveret marriage. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. In fact, let's read those verses now. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now folks, there's a couple of things that we've got to remember here. Women in ancient times could quickly become destitute. So leveret marriage was for all practical purposes 
social security protection for ancient women. If a woman's husband died, sometimes she would be reduced to selling herself as a slave just to make ends meet. And once she got to an age where she couldn't work or her strength diminished to make her less valuable as a slave, she might be turned out on the streets without work and without family. Normally, a, a woman's sons would look after her, but again, if she had no sons, sons, she would end up as a beggar. And so, leveret marriage was God's plan so that she would have at least one son who would be responsible for looking after her all of her days. It was also a way that the family line of the deceased man would continue. Rather than stopping the family line at his death, any child that his widow had, by, or the first son, I should say, that the, the, brother's, the, the husband's brother had, she had by the husband's brother, I'll get my words out, the first son would actually be considered the son of the deceased. He wouldn't be considered the son of the biological father, but he would be considered the son of the deceased. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. Now, additionally, we can assume something else, can't we? We can assume that Onan was trying to eliminate the competition. Because if Tamar had a son, then that son would receive the inheritance that Judah would have left to Ur, Judah's firstborn. But if Ur had no sons, then the inheritance would go to Onan and Onan's sons. You with me? So Onan is sinning at several different levels here. He's sinning against his brother Ur. He's also sinning against his father Judah. He's, he's disobeying his father's instructions to fulfill his brotherly obligation to Ur. He's sinning against Tamar, living, leaving her destitute and childless. And he's sinning in his desire to keep the family wealth for himself. And so he's actually sinning on a number of different levels. Well, notice what happens. God takes Onan's life. Folks, there are consequences to sin. There may be consequences built into the act of sin itself. Like a drunkard who ends up with cirrhosis of the liver. But it may be that, that God inflicts illness or death on you too. Think of 1 Corinthians 11. What happened in 1 Corinthians 11? Does anybody remember what was happening there? Exactly. Exactly. So he said, some of you are sick and some of you have died. 
And so does this mean that all illness and death is the result of sin? Well, actually, the answer is yes and no, right? Yes and no. Yes on the ultimate level, because what did Adam and Eve's sin produce? It produced death. And so in the ultimate sense, is sickness and death a result of sin? Yes, but not necessarily in the immediate sense. That was the mistake that Job's friends made. They assumed that Job's suffering was the result of sin on Job's part, and that was not the case at all. In fact, even God said that Job was a righteous man. So don't always draw a straight line from sickness and death over to sin. But certainly here in this case, God also took Onan's life. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this today. Along with Judas, you never hear sons named Onan today or Ur, do you? Those are some names you just never hear anymore. And maybe it's because of cases like this. On the pages of Scripture, just like Judas, these were considered wicked men. And so nobody names their sons this anymore. Or, or girls aren't named Jezebel. Okay, secondly tonight, I want you to see Judah's fears and Tamar's patience and plan. Judah's fears and Tamar's patience and plan, picking up in verse 11 and going down through verse 23. Judah puts Tamar off. What's he say to her? Just go back to your mom and dad's until my youngest, Sheila, is older and when he's older, I'll give him to you to marry. But folks, that was nothing more than a lie. Judah didn't intend to do that at all. He's scared that his youngest son will also be put to death. And so he's simply putting Tamar off, hoping that some other solution might come up in time. Now also, there might have been another fear here that would have cast an unjust dispersion on Tamar. There was a common belief at the time that women who were prone to becoming widows because they had repeatedly become widows were, were actually having that happen to them because they practiced witchcraft. That was a common belief. Again, unjust in Tamar's case. But that might have been in Judah's mind also. Well, in time, what happens? Judah's wife dies. He travels to Timnah to supervise his sheep being sheared. Now, I told you folks, there are, there are different 
unseen levels in this story. And here we come to some of those. First, Tamar is actually exonerated in what she has planned even before she's exonerated by Judah himself. Because according to Hittite law, in fact, Hittite law number 193 to be very specific. And you can look it up. Hittite law number 193 that was common at, at the time of this story. Because remember the Hittites were some of the common people of the land. Hittite law number 193 said that if a widow is given the brother of her deceased husband and the brother also dies leaving her childless, then the father-in-law is to take her as a wife. And so in this case, Judah should have married Tamar himself after the death of Onan according to Hittite law. So seen in that light, Tamar is only forcing the issue through deception. She's securing what would have normally already been done for her in that culture. Now on still another level is what often took place among the Canaanites and the Hittites. When harvest time came, the time of gathering in the crops and shearing the sheep, this was a festive time. These were festive occasions. And remember, what do we know about the Canaanites and the Hittites? What about them specifically? I'm going to bump this hair up. It's bugging me. This, this. What do we know about them in, in particular? Okay. And, and why? Why would they have had the temple? They worship Baal. And according to Baal, what was Baalism? It was a fertility cult. Right? Because they believed that Baal, the storm god, he had a female counterpart. And Baal and his female counterpart would have sexual relations. And that would produce fertility on the earth. And so in Baalism, they had temple prostitutes or shrine prostitutes. And at the time of harvesting or sheep shearing... The, the men, when they, when they were coming together and harvesting their crops and shearing their sheep, there would be shrine prostitutes who would veil their faces and they would go out in public and, and the, the men, some of the men, the, the pagan men, would have sexual relations with them, believing that that would continue to ensure fertility of their land, their crops, and their herds would, would produce abundantly. Now, Judah is not a Baal worshiper, but he's taking advantage of that custom. Yes, he's no doubt simply satisfying his lust, but he's He's probably doing so hiding behind this common practice, with shrine prostitutes. 
Judah, remember, had deceived his father Jacob along with his brothers when they took Joseph's robe, dipped it in goat's blood, and then took that to Jacob. And so here is Judah being deceived by Tamar. The deceiver, one of the deceivers, is being deceived. You reap what you sow. And even a goat factors in, right? Just like when they dipped uh, the blood of the goat, the, the Joseph's robe into the blood of the goat, even a goat factors in. Kind of funny how things kind of go around in these stories, right? Well, what happens about Tamar's plan? It works. She conceives. She becomes pregnant. When she sins, or when he sends the goat through his servant, the men said, there's no shrine prostitute here. We've never had a shrine prostitute in this area. Again, no one thought it strange that there was a shrine prostitute being looked for. They'd never had one in that area, but they knew they were common. Okay, the third thing I want you to see is Judah's hypocrisy exposed. Once Judah is told about Tamar's pregnancy, what's he demand? He demands her death, demands her death by burning. He probably leaps at the opportunity to get rid of Tamar once and for all because that way he won't even have to think about what he should have already done for her. Having her burned is going to put an end quickly to any responsibility he's going to have towards her. Plus, if it's true in the case of Tamar, which again it wasn't, that Tamar had put a witchcraft hex on his two sons, which resulted in their death, her prostitution now is, uh, is simply a further sign to him of her wickedness. He's thinking she's a wicked woman, so he has her put to, he calls for her to be put to death. What's Tamar do? She moves in for the kill. She exposes who the father of her child is. And so her plan works beautifully. And notice that rather than include himself in any kind of punishment that would have been meted out to her, what's Judah then do? He quickly exonerates her. He knows he better exonerate her and exonerate himself in exonerating her. Now, folks, was this risky business for her? Certainly it was risky business, but it turned out beautifully for her. She comes away the winner here. Now, we've got a long ways yet to go, several more things to uncover in wrapping this chapter up. I want you to notice the chapter closes with a repeat of the Jacob and Esau story. How the younger received the blessing and God's purposes continued on through the younger. Remember how Paul uses that, that story in Romans chapter 9? What's, what's Paul do? with the Jacob and Esau twins the, and the younger 
getting the primary blessing. How, how does Paul use that? God's sovereign choice. And Paul uses it to emphasize unconditional election. That in election, God doesn't elect his children because of something in them. Because Paul points out, these boys weren't even born yet. Jacob and Esau weren't even born yet. They had not even had a chance to do anything good yet or anything bad. Before they were even born, God chose the younger and despised the older. This story here is like that also. God chooses the second born. Now folks, in both stories of the birth of twins, what's being pointed out? God chooses who He chooses. It's His doing. It's not our doing. It also advances the storyline in the Bible that God looks upon the second birth. Just as he looked upon the second birth in the Jacob-Esau story, just as he looked upon the second birth here in the Perez-Zerah story, so God now looks upon the second birth in us, the spiritual birth. And, and so the actual second born physically in these two storylines in Genesis points out that today... God still looks for the second birth in our case. You with me? The spiritual birth. That's what matters to God. Just like God chose the younger Jacob over the older Esau, here he chooses the younger Perez over the older Zerah. But still, there's more of this iceberg to uncover. We're not done yet. Let's think about Judah and Tamar. First of all, Judah. And what do we want to say here about Judah? People really do change. Judah does not come across well at all in this chapter. On, on a number of different levels, he's a failure. He's a disappointment. But Judah humbles himself and he admits here before it's said and done that he's been wrong and Tamar was right. So his humility here is a great start, isn't it? And then by the time we come over to Genesis 44, what's Judah doing there? When, when Judah and his brothers go before Joseph, and remember, they don't know that Joseph is Joseph. They just think they're going before the prime minister of Egypt. They don't know it's Joseph yet. That's not been revealed to them. What does Judah do that's noble? He volunteers. He offers his life in place of Benjamin's to be a pledge. 
so their father won't be bereaved of his youngest, Benjamin, if something happens. So Judah in Genesis 44 is willing to surrender his rights and lay down his life. And then we come to Genesis 49 and what's Jacob do when Jacob is about to die? and He's pronouncing the blessings and the curses on his sons. He points out that Judah will be the son through whom the Messiah will come. And so, yes, people do change. And there's hope in that, isn't there? Judah was not defined for the rest of his life by what he did here in chapter 38. Well, let's think also about Tamar. Tamar... According to Jewish tradition, we're not told specifically what I'm about to say in the text here, but according to rabbinical tradition and Jewish tradition, Tamar was a Canaanite. Just like Judah married a Canaanite when he sought a bride for Ur, And he got Tamar, he got a Canaanite wife for his son. That would have made her who? That would have made her somebody who would have been considered until then outside of the people of God. But she turns out to be a heroine of God's people. She shows up in the lineage of the Messiah along with a few other women listed. There's Rahab. What do you know about Rahab? She was a prostitute who turned away from that so that she could be included among God's people. Then there's Ruth. What do you know about Ruth? What was she? She was a Moabite. Again, a Gentile who marries in to the children of Israel. Then there's Bathsheba. What was Bathsheba? She was a Hittite. The wife of Uriah. Who sins along with King David. And then there's Mary the mother of Jesus. No sin there. I mean, obviously, sin like anybody else, but, I mean, no no bad baggage to her life. But these are the women in the genealogy of Jesus. You would think Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel might have been mentioned, but instead, it's Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, and Bathsheba. Those are the women mentioned. What's the message in that? Well, the message in that is that Gentiles were included in God's plan.
think about it. Matthew's gospel, Matthew, the most Jewish of the four gospels, begins with Gentiles who are in the genealogy of Jesus. And then Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission where Jesus' disciples are to go where? Go to the nations, making disciples. So Matthew begins his gospel with Gentiles in the genealogy and the Great Commission at the end with the good news going to Gentiles. Well, let's look underneath the surface of the water at this iceberg. Let's go down a little bit further still. Listen to the words of Victor Hamilton, and I quote here. Each of these four women had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union. Nevertheless, these unions were, by God's providence, links in the chain to the Messiah. Accordingly, each of them prepares the way for Mary, whose marital, whose marital situation is also peculiar given the fact that she's pregnant but has not yet had sexual relations with her betrothed husband Joseph. Thus, the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree on one hand foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ and on the other hand blunts any attack on Mary. God had worked His will in the midst of whispers of scandal. You see the connection he's making? You think, were there whispers of scandal about Mary? Certainly. Unjustified, but whispers of scandal. In this story here with Tamar... And you could say also with Rahab and Bathsheba, with these women, there had been justifiable whispers of scandal. Mary, unjustifiable. But again, the people are being prepared, hey, God, God has used women before like this where scandal had been associated with them. Again, Mary's was unjustified, the whispers. But what's Victor Hamilton saying? The people's minds would have been prepared for this. It wouldn't have been unthinkable that God had not ever used people in spite of scandal. Overall, folks, what do we see in the book of Genesis? God's purposes can continue through very unlikely people, through very sinful people and very fallen people. And what's that do? That gives everybody hope, right? If God only used perfect people, then our Bibles would be very, very thin and there wouldn't be many pages to our Bible at all. 
Other than Jesus, there wouldn't be any names. Imperfect people, fallen people, sinful people, whom God redeems and changes. Now, the change in some of them, even after they're redeemed, the change is pretty slow in coming. But it eventually comes. But the book of Genesis shows what? Shows that God can do His wondrous acts of grace through anybody He chooses. That's the kind of God He is. Sex scandals in chapter 38, you betcha. But God's purposes marched forward nonetheless. Even through the deception. Okay, anything else that you picked up on that I didn't cover? You see all the different levels, though, of things going on in this chapter? Right. Once he once it, it was thrown up in his face and was revealed and confessed about it, he turned away and that probably started him on the right path after that. Because he ends up in him wants to face it. Sure. Sure. It was kind of a wake up call to him, you would hope, anyway. Certainly seems to indicate that. Oh, yeah. And that's another purpose in this story here. I'm glad you mentioned that because I meant to say that. This, this story of Joseph here being placed here shows a great contrast, at this point anyway, between Judah and Joseph. Because what do we learn about Joseph? Well, we're told about Joseph. He was, he was a good-looking young man. Uh, he was handsome and well-built. And what, what did Potiphar's wife want? She wanted him. Uh, I guess the opposite of the Me Too movement we've seen today. She grabs a hold of him to even take him by force. And he runs out of the home, right? He gets out of Dodge. So here Joseph is a model of integrity and purity. Even when a woman is pursuing him like that. Here's Judah on the other hand. Look at what Judah is doing. Going up and finding a prostitute. So Judah and Joseph are being set in sharp contrast to one another. Because the Genesis story in the next chapter is going to pick up with Joseph again. And the Joseph narrative occupies the largest amount of space of any character in the book of Genesis. And Joseph is kind of like Daniel. Remember what was said of Daniel? 
They looked and looked and looked for what in Daniel's life? Something they could find to accuse Daniel by. And there was nothing there. I mean, they put every aspect of Daniel's life under the microscope. And there was no accusation they could bring against him. Joseph is pretty much the same way. So again, uh, in addition to all these other things being set up here, the contrast between Judah and Joseph at this point. Questions? Well, like I say, common belief among the people. Now, we're not told, this is only speculation. We're not told in the biblical text. Common belief among the people in that area at that time is that if a woman kept being a widow, she's involved in witchcraft. So is he thinking, is he thinking that? I don't know. We're not told that. But he's at least thinking if I give her my youngest son... He's going to die too. Sure. Sure. Played into it. Yeah. <laughs> but I told you there's there, there's more to the iceberg of chapter 38 below the surface of the water, isn't there? Than when you just first read it. The, the Leverett marriage, the Hittite law number 193 that he should have married Tamar himself. Gentile women... In, this, in the genealogy of Jesus, prefiguring that God includes Gentiles in the good news of the gospel. So many different levels at work here in this chapter. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we find as we study these characters in the book of Genesis. We certainly see that your purposes are greater than sin. Uh, you work in spite of our sin. You work even through our sin while not being the author of it. But you overcome it and your purposes march forward. And God, we see that all through the Bible. And Lord, we see what imperfect and fallen people you called. Lord, sometimes people today have this attitude that one of these days when I'm good enough, maybe I'll be able to serve the Lord. Lord, that's, that's a lie uh, from Satan. Lord, we know that once you change us by your grace, that then we are created for good works. Uh, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. 
not as the root of our salvation, but as the fruit of our salvation. But Lord, in the gospel, we see the promise that you take very sinful lives and you, you redeem us, you change us, and then you use us for your glory. And uh, we become a testimony to others. So God, I pray that no one in this room tonight would think that they have gone too far, that, that you can't reach them. Uh, I pray that they'd come to you, confess their sin, and that their lives would become a living sacrifice for you. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful story here too of Gentiles in the line of the Messiah. Uh, Lord, the good news, as Paul says, the, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And we thank you for that uh, because we're all Gentiles in here tonight. So God, we thank you that we are included in your plan. Lord, we pray for those in the church family who need you right now. Uh, those who have experienced loss have a big void in their homes or in their families. Uh, there's empty chairs around the table now. I pray, God, that you would encourage them and fill that void. Uh, for those still recovering from surgery, uh, Lord, just give them your strength and healing touch. For those about to face surgery, give their doctors wisdom to see what you already see about their condition, that everything they do in the surgery or in the treatment plan would be exactly what their body needs for healing. And Lord, we know you can touch lives too, even without doctors and medicines and heal. It seems like most often today, you, you use medicines and doctors. And Lord, sometimes it's your plan not to heal, but rather to... Take someone home and give them the ultimate healing. Where that's the case, with names on the list, I pray that you would give those folks your peace and comfort. Lord, now as we continue about life for the rest of this week, I pray that we would be mindful of the people that we will cross paths with. That you would use us to spread the good news of Jesus in their lives. Lord, thank you again for your word and just how powerfully it speaks to our everyday lives and circumstances. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.